Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Joe, thank you for having me. You're welcome. That was very official, like a very official sound. I took a little pause you between did? your name and the traditional <laughs> thank you, which made it seem very sort of formal. Formal. Yeah, that's what it was. It was a little bit formal. Yeah. And there is no doubt that you're doing that. In honor of of Derek Jeter, I Derek think we Sanderson all, Jeter. That's right, Derek Sanderson Jeter. Uh, I think we're all trying at this point just to just to live up to the to the celebration of, of Jeter. Am I right? I mean, that's I, how I feel. Yeah, of course. I will also say that uh, you know we had uh, Linda Holmes on as a guest a couple of weeks ago. We did, and, and we all. We the the point of having her on. She's a TV critic and a great writer, and we had her on uh, specifically to recommend a team for her to become a fan of. That was the point of the of the exercise. Was she's looking for a team to support, and we recommend a team. My main recommendation was the Astros. That's right. And I feel like what she is now seeing. I don't know if she's made up her mind, but what she is now seeing after last night is like. That is a great piece of evidence in favor of rooting for the Astros because to go into Yankee Stadium on Derek Jeter night and and beat up their best pitcher and knock him around their own park was pretty great. Like, if you're, unless you're a Yankee fan, but if you're not a Yankee fan, that was it was pretty like the Yankees of old, the Yankees of the Jeter era win a game like that a hundred times out of a hundred. Right. You know right. what I mean? Like they, they never lose that game where there's any kind of like, let's celebrate the 15th anniversary of Tino Martinez's RBI double, whatever. Cause they do that stuff all the time and they never lose those games. In fact, usually they win that game in a crazy comeback. And I right. actually tweeted when the Astros were up nine, nothing. I tweeted, uh, you know, the if if Jeter were really something like this, like if Jeter were really a champion, he would figure out a way to inspire the Yankees to come back and win. And then I tweeted, "I'm going to regret that <laughs> decision because <laughs> as soon as I wrote it, I was like, oh, I'm that this is guaranteeing that they're going to come back and win." I left to go to dinner with my family. When I came back, I saw the final score was ten yeah. seven, which is <laughs> way too close to win a game when you're up nine nothing in like the fifth or sixth inning. But the point is. I say to Linda, if you're listening, you get on board the Astros train. Like, I feel like I steered you in the right direction based on what happened last night. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like the Astros were, were there for all of us, really. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think the Astros would view themselves uh, as America's team. I, they're kind of rebels, the way they run things and all that. But uh, I think, I, you know, other than... There was nobody who was not a Yankees fan who was rooting for the Yankees on Derek Jeter night, right? I mean, nothing after a week of just getting peppered with Derek Jeter stuff just again and again and again, <laughs> right? And you, you wanted the Yankees to, you know, to lose on Derek Jeter night just sort of felt – it felt very – one of my favorite scenes in, in Brian's song is is when when – uh, Gail Sayers uh, brings the the game ball to Brian Piccolo, and Brian Piccolo says, uh, "This is great, but you know when you give a game ball to somebody, uh, you're supposed to win the game, you idiots." And <laughs> I kind of felt like this was a sort of a a wonderful way for the Yankees to do it is to lose on Derek Jeter Day. Um, just it just felt a little special. It way. raises an interesting question, I think, which is uh, my I have a friend named Owen Ellickson who's a who has been a Golden State Warriors fan for 20 years and is now sort of struggling with how dominant they are. Yeah. And he was tweeting last night during the game about how, like, you know, or, like you, he should have been happy, right? His team was down 23 points in the second half and came back and won. And But he was saying, like, it's hard to root. He's finding it hard to root for his own team. And I feel like the Warriors are now in a little bit of a position that, like, the Yankees used to be that you could make an argument. The Red Sox have been in in recent history that certain dominant, the Patriots certainly are where, like, no one outside of their core fan base roots for them. Like, everyone, I mean, which isn't to say there aren't scattered people around who are Patriots fans or whatever, but generally speaking, the entire country wants that team to lose and is happy when that team loses. And I feel like the, the, Derek, like the, the best possible example of that, to me, is 
the New York Yankees on Derek Jeter night. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no more galvanizing event in sports in terms of like everyone outside of the hometown crew. Everyone wants the that team to lose, right? Like everybody, everyone in the yeah. world wants that team to lose on that. Oh, night. No, no question. And by the way, I can see that with the with the Warriors. I kind of the you know the Cubs are are struggling this year, which is which is really interesting uh, because I kind of was wondering what was going to happen if the Cubs just kept being dominant, which of course they still might be. Um, but like win after year, like last year, I think the Cubs had whatever, 75% of the country pretty much on board. I mean, obviously, there are always going to be some people who despise the Cubs. Cardinals fans don't like the Cubs. Brewers fans, all that. But generally, everybody was like, oh, the Cubs is a wonderful story. But it goes from wonderful story to, God, I hate those guys, like, in a minute. It yeah. just takes, like, a minute. And the Warriors are the – they could not be more – not as much this year, but the last two years – could not be more lovable, right? I mean, just it's the way they play, how much fun they are, and and Steph Curry is just the greatest ever and, you know, wonderful to, to watch and root for and all that. Uh, and then, you know, last year, kind of in the finals, weird with the groin kicking and things kind of started turning a little bit. And then they get Kevin Durant, and that sort of makes them feel like a bully. And, yeah, now I don't think there are a lot of people outside of sort of the – Warriors fan base. I think everybody likes watching them play. They're fun to watch play, but I don't get the sense that there is a huge throng of kind of Golden State fans who are like neutral fans but want Golden State to win. I I think that's going away. Well, interestingly, maybe or maybe not, maybe boringly, (laughs) I am one of those fans. I am 100% on the Golden State Warrior bandwagon and have been. uh, I was very, very happy for LeBron and Cleveland last year. So super happy for them. But when they got Durant, I was like, yes, great. Go be like, I, I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for the greatness in a way that I, yeah, that I rarely do. I almost never feel this way. I didn't root for LeBron really in Miami when they put that team together. I didn't not root for them. Cause I, I, the, as you know, as we've talked about the only narrative the, the narrative in sports I hate the most is he's the best player who never won a championship right. In, right. In, in any sport. And and that was what LeBron was when he went to Miami. And so I was happy for him that he uh, won those titles. Uh, and yet, I didn't really like care about the heat. But when the Warriors, because they're so fun, because they were already so fun to watch play, when they got Kevin Durant, who, by the way, if you have never seen Kevin Durant play a live basketball game, it's like I don't know even what to compare it to. Like it's it's a different it's a different kind of human being. It's like a non-human being playing a game that you thought you understood that you actually don't understand. Like you have never seen a seven foot tall man well, do the things that he does in a live basketball game. I the first time I went to a Clippers game a couple of years ago uh, and watched Westbrook and Durant, which who both of whom. I had never seen play live, and both of them, by the way, are the oh, are insane. insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and but I just fell in love, truly in love with Kevin Durant. And I, I, when he went to the Warriors, I had two thoughts. Number one is he's going to win a title, and that's great. I'm happy for him because he deserves to win a title. But sure. number two is how much fun is that team going to be to watch play? And I feel like they have one, they have one thing. Uh, that is stopping them from being more beloved, I think, by the casual fan or by the neutral fan, and that thing is Draymond Green. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. so like because he, he's kind of an he's a psychopath, and he <laughs> and he does crazy things, and he screamed last night. He picked up a technical foul because he made his defense is re- is amazing. He's probably he's maybe so good. That's maybe amazing. yeah, right, maybe so the good. best defender in the league. It's Emmer Kawhi. And he caused a player on the Spurs to, like, slip and, like, lose the ball out of bounds. And then he, like, sort of slightly bent over at the waist and screamed at him at the top of his lungs like an ancient warrior on a battlefield, got teed up, and then started screaming at the ref as if you're like, how could you call the technical? It was the definition of a taunting foul. Like, it was, he screamed at him so loudly you could hear it in, the like, the upper deck of the of the arena – and then he got furious at the ref for calling what was so obviously a technical. So, like, I feel like, you know, Draymond is both part of what makes that team so fun to watch because his defense is so good and he's such a weird sort of unicorn of a player. 
But he's yeah. also, I think, probably the damper that keeps the casual fan or the neutral fan from liking the team more. Well, I, I think that's right. I think that's partly true. I think it's also partly true that you, you just can't be the team that the neutral fan likes if you keep winning. You know, I mean, if you win and win and win and win, at some point, and look, it, it, I, I think Magic's Lakers were incredibly fun to watch. Um, you know, and but unless you despise the Celtics more, you weren't picking them as your sort of neutral team. Um, you know, but but I would also say this, and let, let me let me add two things to that. One is, I think I'm probably wrong. There probably are a lot of neutral fans who like Golden State and probably like them more than Cleveland. Uh, you know, just because LeBron is sort of is Cleveland, so it's like if you like LeBron or don't like LeBron. But Golden State is this wonderful, weird mix of great players and and kind of crazy and and fun and you know all that. But the, but the second thing I have to say is. You're a hundred percent right on Durant. It, it, the the NBA here's what makes the NBA different. I think fundamentally different from all sports. I think baseball is significantly better in person than it is on television. It's still great on television, but it's significantly better in person. It's just there's like a there's like a wonderful vibe when you're there at the game that is missing. I think from television, football is better on television. I think. I yeah. mean, it's certainly great live in, in its own way, but on television with the replays, with the slow motion, with everything else, you you just get to appreciate the game. The NBA is great both. It's like the one sport I like because if you're watching it on television, it's really, really fun. It's it's a very, very fun game on television. But it's like a whole different game when it's live because you realize how big these guys are, how athletic they are, it's you know how physical the game is. So it's like a whole different game live, but it's still a great game. On television, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it feels to me like in different ways, it's great in both ways. And so when you go watch Kevin Durant on television, you like that that guy's ridiculous. He's an unbelievable shooter. He just never misses. He's incredible. But then you go in person and you go, he's also a giant man. He's also like a different. He's like a different species. He's yeah. so big, you know. And that's. I think that's what the NBA has going for it. I mean, I think it's that it's. Uh, I think hockey is way way better live than it is on television. Hockey is almost unwatchable on on TV. I think it, it's it's. I mean, it's like the, you know, an exciting game is still exciting, but it, yeah, it's that, that's probably the biggest gap. But you're right in, about basketball. It's it's great in both cases. But when you go live and you really are watching seven foot Kevin Durant dribble like like leaning over and dribbling like he's a point guard and then like blowing past someone or stopping on a dime and like hitting an you know an 18 foot contested jumper you just you start to feel like there's no way he can be stopped because he can just shoot over you and mo- anyone who's guarding him really he can shoot over because he's not he's bigger than everybody except the center on the, right. <laughs> the other team and but then also he can he can dribble past people like he's John Wall it's just the craziest combination of skills i've ever seen no oh, it's insane yeah. it's insane all right, do we do we need to do a Yankee minute, or have we sort of covered the Yankees? With I feel like we I feel like we covered the Yankees. The last, the only other thing I'll say is that I I I did something kind of mean, and I I, I don't want to apologize, but I want to I kind of want to laugh about it, which was I as the week of crushing Derek Jeter news uh, sort of like permeated my soul and spirit. <laughs> I decided to troll Yankee fans, and I didn't think it was going to work. I really didn't think it was going to work, but it did. And I started a, a thread on Twitter where I just wrote, Derek Jeter's number's being retired tonight. The Yankees shouldn't do this. And he doesn't deserve it, and he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, and here's why. And then I wrote, like, one slash, meaning, like, here's a thread, right? And I walked people through the worst possible argument I could think of. Like, literally, <laughs> the dumbest possible argument, which was basically, like, if you go to the on the baseball reference page for any player... There's 24 categories, and Jeter played for 20 years, which means he had 480 chances to lead the league in any category. And this is actually true. He only did it nine times. Six of them were played appearances and at-bats. Two of them, I think, were uh, runs, and one of them was hits, or vice versa. Two were hits, and one was runs. Right. So my argument was nine-category 
titles out of 480 possible categories. That's terrible. And also, guess who else also led the league in hits twice? Juan Pierre. Does Juan Pierre deserve to have his number retired to be in the Hall of Fame? No, of course he doesn't. I mean, this is like literally the the dumbest, most ignorant argument you could make, right? Like Jeter ended the year, uh, ended his career like uh, top six, I think, sixth in hits all time. That person deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, whoever that person is. It's a, it's not. There's no argument here. But I made it, and then I made an argument that Jeter was at best the fifth best player on fifth, any of the yeah. teams. Yeah, because and then I named various Yankees who played with him, who I said were better, and those Yankees were at any given time: uh, Bernie Williams, Jason Giambi, Alex Rodriguez, um, uh, Paul O'Neill, people like that. But then I got into like Scott Brocious. <laughs> I almost did Chad Curtis, but then I thought that was giving it away. But, like, yeah, Scott Brocious and Jacoby Ellsbury I claimed was better than Jeter. So, um, and so I'm, you know, going on and on and on and, and basically saying, like, you know, he doesn't deserve it. And then I wrote, and there's one more thing, and this is the most controversial point that I could make. Uh, but, you know, I'm a truth teller, so I'm going to just come out and say it. And then the last tweet was, like, I'm, of course, kidding. Jeter was amazing. Congratulations. And the number of people. I can't like it, it, it in a weird way. It it, it was a, an accidental sh- social experiment because I was yelled at so loudly by so many people who were like, this is so stupid. You they called me every name in the book. They were like you they were quoting before they were even done before I was even done. They were quoting statistics at me like, you know, six most hits all time, five world championships. You know, you know, you know, people say he wasn't a good defender. Here's a metric that shows he was like. I mean, it was it was amazing, and it. I just want to say, f- for the record, it was a, obviously it was just a joke. But uh, America, let's read to the end, <laughs> like just as like a rule. And by the way, I'm guilty of this sometimes too. But like, read to the end of something right. before you share it on Facebook or tweet about it or whatever. I, I I have done this many times. I've read a headline or a first paragraph, and I have tweeted something, and then I have to go back and write like, "Oops, sorry, that was dumb." Uh, but like, it, I mean, this was like to read thirteen tweets probably takes what sixty eight seconds or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So it, I'm not. I wasn't asking for a, a, a huge investment of your time. <laughs> I was asking for let's say sixty eight seconds. But I just like just read to the end, please. Please, and because this was stupid and harmless and a dumb troll job by me because I hate Derek Jeter slash respect <laughs> him slash admire him. So but like, are afraid, afraid of him. That's right. But these, this is like, to me, it was like, a, it went into this larger category of like, oh, this is why we have problems with the, with the validity of news and facts on the internet. That's my well, end, I, end of rant. Well, no, but I do wonder. I mean, you know, of course, I... I uh, saw it as you were tweeting it out, and uh, and of course knew you were you. Were, I didn't know where it was. I didn't know how you were going to end it, but I knew you were obviously trolling. And and uh, and then I started to see some of the people who clearly did not think you were trolling. And, and even like early on, maybe you know you're. You, I don't know. I I to me really from the very beginning it seemed pretty obvious. But okay, early on maybe. But when you started putting Scott Brocious up there, I mean, you had to feel like somebody <laughs> was going to go, well, maybe he's not really being serious here. But here's my question, and, and this is actually a very serious question. Why? Why do people fall for this? Like, what? Like, is it because that the analysis of what we're doing is really, really kind of that bad? And so everybody sort of thinks like, you know, hey, that's – no dumber than other things I've said or read or written or whatever. And so, yeah, I'm buying it. I, I like, I can't figure out what it is that, that would separate so that people would like immediately see that and go, yeah, he can't be, he's joking. There's, it's clear he doesn't mean this. Yeah. I think it's a combination of things, right? I mean, the first one is that sports arguments inflame passions in a way that regular arguments don't always um, I also think that we live in an era where the main way to get people to pay attention to your sports opinions is to make them absurd. It's the yes. skip Baylisification of everything. Uh, so, so people are are like sort of ready at a, at the drop of a hat to as, first of all to assume that the person is not trolling, or if they are, that it doesn't matter because I'm going to go after them. Uh, and then also, there's a way in which people are just impatient, and if you 
see something that you disagree with or, or hate or whatever, you just immediately jump on it and start yelling and screaming. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a Venn diagram overlap, I think, of a bunch of different things that all lead to a very unpleasant conclusion or result, which is that if you tweet Derek Jeter doesn't deserve to have his number retired by the Yankees, which of course he does for the love of all that is holy, everyone even though I'm my my persona on Twitter, if you follow me, you you're pretty familiar probably with like what I the kind well, of person I am. Yeah, like but it's like even then it just doesn't matter. Like people are just ready to throw down at a moment's notice. And I just everyone needs to just take a deep breath and relax, I think. Well, I do think. I think I think your point is right, because there have been times where various people who don't need to be named will tweet something out about LeBron James that is just as stupid as the fake faux Derek Jeter argument, but they mean it, you know, but they, yeah. they actually mean it. And so I, I think that's that to me is what what I take away from it. I mean, obviously, other than the fact that it was hilarious. Um, but the thing I take away from it is that you can't we are in a society and at a time where you can't there is no irony like there's you can't say anything stupid enough that somebody will really think, oh, he's joking. Because I think that, that, especially in sports, I think we're at a point now, some of the things that have been said about, about LeBron uh, are just so stupid and ridiculous. And, and, you know, you're just like, we're watching, okay, I'll just say, we're watching the greatest player of all time. Yeah. And, yes. and, and yet people will say just the most incredible things about him, and they mean it. And they mean it. Yeah. You know? So it's... Yeah. It's nuts. It's nuts. All right. Well, it is time for the draft. Okay, but before we do this, I have I, I had a new I have a new segment to Ooh. introduce into the podcast that actually weirdly segues perfectly into the draft topic. So here we go. Nice. The new segment is called You Be the Commissioner. Now I <laughs> I want you to imagine this is like an old eighties video and like Mike Schmidt is like turning to the camera and pointing and saying, you be the commissioner. That's what I'm imagining in my head. Uh, so here so here it is, okay? I, as, as you know, I believe I volunteered to be the official commissioner of my son's youth uh, pony league baseball league. Right. Yes. yes. So, and it's a nine, nine and under uh, division, and I volunteered to be the commissioner. And a, uh, the, my son's coach was actually – uh, away, and I was coaching the team. And uh, as I was coaching the team on a, a, at a game this past week, I also then was in the middle of a rules kerfuffle, <laughs> which which I had to interpret in the moment. And then, but also, I was sort of aware of the ethical dilemma of being of uh, interpreting a rule in a game in which my son's team is playing. It was a big, it was a big kerfuffle. So it is a kerfuffle. Yeah. So here, so here's the rule. And I want you to say what, how you would have ruled. Okay. And then I will tell you how I ruled. And then I'll tell you <laughs> what the actual uh, rule was. Cause we got clarification. Okay. Okay. So in important thing to know in nine, U baseball in this league, uh, home plate is closed. And what that means is uh, if a runner's on third, there's a wild pitch or a passed ball or the catcher throws the ball back to the pitcher or whatever and it gets past the pitcher the runner cannot go home uh right. so it, it's a, it's a, there's pass balls or wild pitches on like 50 to 60% of all pitches and so it's a, it's an obvious just like let's keep home plate closed right so what the rule says is a runner can come home only on a batted ball a walk or like a catcher's interference or a hit by pitch with the bases loaded. So those are the only ways that it, so it has to be a batted ball, right? So my son's team, second runners on second and third, nobody out uh, ball gets hit to the second baseman on the other team. So the runner on third is going to come home uncontested, right? Right. The, the batter and the runner on second is heading to third. The batter is running to first. The field, the second baseman picks up the ball, throws it to first and uh, the ball gets past the first baseman. At which point, the runner on third goes home. Now, there was a kerfuffle because the question was, okay, well, wait a second. Home plate is closed, meaning home runner can only go home on a batted ball. In this case, the runner had arrived at third at roughly the time that the fielder had picked up the ball. So is that runner on third allowed to come home and score the run? Ah, that's a very, very interesting so, question. So, Joe Posnanski, <laughs> you be the commissioner. 
All right. Well, you know, obviously I am not, uh, you know, I, I don't have anything blocking me from making this decision because it's not right. my son who is right. on the team. So I can right. do this. I can just say it. It appears to me that that the rule is stated as such not to prevent runs from scoring on plays like that, but to prevent runs from scoring on pass balls and wild pitches, which is, you know, while the while the game is not in action, feels to me that if the ball gets by the first baseman, we're still in play. The ball batted ball having having caused the action as is, I say the runner does get to score. Okay, so that was the ruling on the field. Okay. That, and then the opposing coach, very nice guy, by the way. Not this isn't a, this isn't a very screamy, yelly, kind of weavery no. type of angry. <laughs> no, yeah, no. The, oppo- totally got that wrong. the opposing coach raises the question, and, and I think in a legitimate, like, is this okay? Is this allowed? Kind of a way. Sure. I conferred with the umpire. My ruling was that ruling, which is a batted ball. Include in the spirit of the rule, or as written, in, in, in that a batted ball includes the kind of fielding plays that are the result of the batted ball, right? Sure. And my sure. reasoning was like, what if you were in a situation where uh, there were the bases were loaded and a line drive got hit into the outfield and it took one hop and the first and the outfielder uh, just missed the ball and it went like s- screaming past him, right? And then it theoretically, if an error, if like a fielder sort of engaging with the ball in some way meant that the play was over, then you, like you'd only score one run. That doesn't seem right. You know, That's right. so I ruled. I said, yes, it, it is. The, it is OK. And we continue with the game. And then we got a rules clarification. I wrote 400 emails because I was genuinely curious <laughs> and got a clarification. And that is, in fact, the correct that's uh, good. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I, I totally. I think it would. The ruling would be in. It would be. It would be a, an invalid uh, interpretation of a closed home plate if the if the ball is still in play. The ball, yeah. the ball is in play on on a batted ball. I I'm I'm to. And by the way, I will say this: the nice guy who who brought up the the question. Seems very legitimate. It's a legitimate totally. question. Absolutely. Legitimate. And the the problem is, if you really think about it, uh, you it would be hard to figure out when to stop the play. Right? It's like right. it's like an, the second second baseman picked up that ball with the runner on third and the batter heading towards first, and then threw the ball to the first baseman. Like, what if the first what if the first baseman had caught the ball or like bounced the ball off his chest or something, and it sort of dribbled into the infield? It's like, well, how does the runner not? How is he not allowed to go home? Exactly. You know, it's, it's so. Anyway, the point is, you be the commissioner. You were right, Joe. I wish we had like a bell, a little bell we should ding for a correct a little- answer. But yes. as we go along in the season, the season's actually almost over. There's only a couple more games. But if these if these rules come up again, uh, we'll play this. We'll play the. We'll play another round. I like it. You be the commissioner. By the way, I think we should encourage the six people who are listening. Um, if you disagree with this, you know, feel free to. Yeah, to, please to write it. Write us. write a lengthy explanation of why you think I <laughs> 13, interpreted the rule incorrectly. Anyway, that segues perfectly into today's draft. It is because today we are drafting sports rules. That's it. That's there's no other explanation necessary. We are just drafting sports rules, right? Yep. And who has the first pick? You that, have the I'm first pick forever. <laughs> Remember? At some point, you have to take the first pick. I think I you should. I really, I really think you should just take it forever. <laughs> I really think that's not right. But all right, I will take the first pick this week, and maybe we'll argue about it in a couple of weeks. All right. Um, so many great sports rules. I'm just going to go with 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 a with a great classic baseball sports rule, the home run rule. Uh, I love that everything about the rule itself, it didn't have to go that way. You know, they didn't early in baseball's history. Of course, there were no fences. So balls that would go past the, the outfield, you know, you had to run it out. You had to run out home runs. And then you had like fans circling the field and balls would go into the fans. And, and that sort of created all sorts of controversy and whatever. Uh, and then they started putting fences up. And used to be there was there was a time where if you bounced the ball over the fence, it was still a home run, which is horrible. Um, but we've now come around to, I think, just a great classic ruling, which is ball goes over the fence. 
it's a home run. You get all four bases. Uh, you know, there's there's clearly, obviously, individual rules in different ballparks. But as a simple rule, the greatest thing in baseball to me is not it's not the home run. The home run is not the, like the most exciting play or the most, but it is sort of the singular thing that baseball has that no other sport has, which is just that moment where if you hit the ball over the fence, that's it, home run, base is clear. Love the home run. I like it. And there's also there's something great about, um, and you touched on this a little bit, but there's something great about how because of the irregularity of of baseball parks, there's different weird yes. aspects of the home run rule. There's at Fenway in dead center, there's like a weird triangular stand that comes out of center field. So there's a yellow line that goes like up the middle of the center field wall. <laughs> if the ball hits to the left of that, it's a double or, or it's in play. If it hits to the right of it, it's a home run. And there's like, you know, there's all like in San Diego at Petco, there's also similar things down the left field line because there's a warehouse that kind of juts out. And there's just like a lot of different aspects to interpreting the home run rule, which seems like it ought to be pretty easy. Ball goes over a fence, home run. But because of the wonderful uh, irregularity of baseball parks, there's a lot of very specific different rules for the home run in each park, which is great. And I'd like to add, I mean, this is sort of part of the home run thing. I like that if it hits the foul pole, it's a home run. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great, and right? It, I mean, it's great, like, and it's also great that they insist on calling it the foul pole and not the fair pole. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I it's just wonderful. Love, I just, and that moment of hitting it off the foul pole, that's, that is so great. It's sort, of, it's sort of the antithesis of hitting it off of the goalpost, like a, a kicking, you know, like a field goal off the goalpost that bounces out and no good. That when it hits the, that's a home run. I love that. Yeah, um, my f- uh, first overall pick is uh, tie goes to the runner. Um, now here's the thing about tie goes to the runner. It's not a rule. Not a rule. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't actually exist. But tie goes to the runner is one of the first things you learn when you're a kid about baseball, and it is the reason I love it is because. And it, this has changed a little bit with replay, and I know you have your own beefs about replay and everything, but it's changed a little bit. But in the old days, you would argue from the stands or from your in front of your TV set that it was a tie and the reason on a bang-bang play. And the reason you argue that if your team was hitting is because you know a tie goes to the runner. Now, right. it's not a rule. The actual rule is essentially says that a runner gets to the base. If the runner gets to the base bef- and touches the base before he is out – then he has the right to that base. So it's set up to be like the, the ball has to get there before the runner, which the the sort of extrapolation of that is if it's a tie, then the runner, the ball didn't get there before the runner, so the runner is safe. But the uh, the way it's interpreted, the way it's spoken of in at every level from peewee baseball, from t-ball all the way up to professional baseball is tie goes to the runner and it's such a wonderful there's something so wonderful and simple and poetic about it which is like you hit the ball into play you run as fast as you can if the ball and your foot arrive at the same exact moment it's you get that like you won that's what you're doing you're racing the ball and if it's a tie that counts as you winning the other great thing about tie goes to the runner is it never happens there is a now that now that we have replay we see that an actual tie is almost impossible, especially as they've decided to interpret the ball hitting any part of the glove, right? That's what they say now. It's when it hits the pocket, the glove doesn't have to close over it or anything. It's like a literal, like when the ball hits the the webbing or the back of the glove, and it's just the idea that that one millionth of a second moment would be the same as the millionth of a second moment when a foot touch when like the the very tip of a spike touches the very top layer of the base it never happens i mean it's it's but still i just love tie goes to the runner there's something incredibly in a game of inches there's something that's very poetic to me about in that that inch that particular tiny little moment the runner wins yeah, I love it. I love Ty Goes the Runner. And I love it also because, you know, sort of you, you know, expanding on your bit about being poetic, it, it feels like baseball is acknowledging you deserve just a tiny little break over the fielders. Like the, what the fielders are doing is a little bit easier than what you're doing. So tell you what, 
you get there at the same time, we're giving you that base. That's like you have you have totally earned that base. If you can just you don't have to be, you don't have to beat them. Just get there exactly at the same second that they get there, and we're giving it to you. I love that. I love everything about Ty Goes the Runner. I saw one not that long ago. I think this year. I mean, I, I, it feels to me like it was this year that felt to me about as close as I've ever seen to a tie. And I, I will not remember any of the details of it, but I remember watching it in sort of awe because they just kept going, you know, as they will, backward and forward and backward and forward and really, really slowed it down to to the to the milliseconds and whatever. And it was really close to a tie. Really close to the tie. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they called him out on the field and then you saw the replay and it was like a virtual tie. And they didn't overturn it, which I think would have been great yeah. if they had. And just said, no, Ty goes to the runner. You know, that would have that would have worked well. All right, my uh, second pick, I, I've got a couple more baseball ones, but I want to move it around a little bit. Um, I'm just going to go with the plain – it's not a rule per se. It's it's one that, that incorporates all of, you know, various rules, all the, the penalties and so on. Um, but I'm, I'm going to go with the penalty box as a, as a concept. I, I just think – that is it's to me it's my it's one of my favorite things in all of sports is the fact that you can do something so like bad on 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 the ice that they put you in a box and make your team play like shorthanded uh, that just that concept just that idea is brilliant it's absolutely brilliant and no other sport really has it? I mean, I guess you know, in soccer, you can play a man down with a with a red card or whatever. But but it's not the same thing. And it's like you know, there and and I love that there are time limits based on what you did. Okay, that was really bad, so you're you're in there for five, or you're in there for two, or I can't tell. Both of you guys did it, so you're both in there for two. And and I love every single thing about the penalty box and and the the whole idea of it. I think more penalties should be called. I want more penalties. I. I think hockey is so fun and great when it's, you know, when when you have that on and there and those guys sitting there are always so angry when they're in the box, you know, they're like they like I didn't do anything. I just love that sort of feeling too. So, uh, my second pick, I'm going with the penalty box. All right, I, I I'm gonna allow I'm gonna allow you to do that. <laughs> I've just decided I'm the commissioner of this draft, <laughs> and I'll allow you. To, to choose the penalty box, it's a little iffy. It's not. It's iffy. Well, it's because too many things. It's too. It's it, it's because I really a rule would be slashing or something. But I don't want that. I want I want all of it. I want the whole penalty box. All right, um, I'm going to go with a, a kind of weird one. By the way, all, almost all of mine are baseball because baseball is the best rules. Let's just let's yes. face it. Um, I'm going to go with the rule that if you have two strikes as a hitter and you hit a foul ball, you get to keep hitting. <laughs> you basically you can't strike out on a foul ball unless it's a foul tip that is caught, or a you know a foul ball that a pop fly foul that is right, then right. caught you or lined whatever. You can't strike, you out. can't strike out on a foul ball Be, for the simple reason that if you think back to every great classic at bat that has ever happened, uh, almost all of them involve this rule, right? You because the drama of getting to two strikes and then a hitter fouling off a bunch of balls and working the count and making it a 10, 11, 12, 13 pitch at bat. Like, imagine if you just, if a foul ball was just a strike, and it was just strike one, strike two, you'd have fouled, you know, you're out. Um, that that would make the game, so many of the greatest moments in the history of the game wouldn't be nearly as great, because you wouldn't have that long, slow buildup. You wouldn't have that, like, the batter desperately just fouling, getting a piece of it, fouling it straight back, tapping it foul, like, hitting a dribbler foul and then running it out and the ball rolling foul and walking slowly back to the plate. Like the amount of drama, I would say no one rule has contributed more drama to baseball probably and ever than that rule. If you really think about it, that's probably the number one creator of drama in baseball. Love the rule. I love, I love the rule. It's funny. It, it leads perfectly to my third one. Uh, I am at this moment, not at this moment, but generally at this moment, uh, teaching my youngest daughter how to keep score at baseball game. She's shown interest uh, for the first time, and and uh, she's very mathematically inclined. So even though she likes baseball, fine, but she's never loved it. But I think she loves the idea of 
you know, players having different numbers and all this. So one of the rules that we've spent a lot of time on is is the foul ball rule. And and her getting the idea that you could literally hit a million foul balls and you would never be out is fascinating to her. She yeah. just loves that idea. Like that's that so plays with her mind. So that's great. And then I'm going to go with my third rule which is which is another one that we've spent a lot of time on that she really likes and that is the force play. The the idea that when there's a man on base all you have to do is to tag the, the 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 you know subsequent base to get them out but if there is not a man on base or if there if 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 nobody's getting forced you have to tag them we spent like an hour on this concept of when you have to tag the base just tap on the base and when you have to actually tag the runner and it really this is sort of the what made me think of doing this draft in the first place is that is actually brilliant it's really brilliant that if there's a guy on third and and he's not forced that you've got to tag that guy like that you can't just step on home plate and 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 have him out um but if their bases are loaded you can step on home plate because he has nowhere to go that i that just very that's a very subtle interesting concept of when to tag and when to step on the base and it's it's just beautiful it really is beautiful it's, they got that exactly right yeah, it's really it is a, another. It's like they. It, it's like baseball worked backwards with some of these things yeah. to figure out, and in a weird way they did because the game has evolved so slowly. If you go back and look at the old rules of like the 19th century, they were crazy, and they tried a right. million things, and it's just been around long enough, and there's been enough games where they have enough data points to see like, all right, what are the rules? How far from the from each other should the bases be? How far from home plate should the rubber be? How you know that my third rule is actually just in general uh, for the for the similar for a similar reason. My third rule is the rule. I'm gonna uh, sort of co- collecting them all into one big chunk. It's the distance, the distance of all of the main important things in the infield <laughs> from each other. Because I I remember when I was a kid losing my mind thinking about how the pitching rubber is sixty feet six inches from home plate. Uh, the you know uh, first base is ninety feet on a right angle this way. Then you take a right angle and go ninety feet that way to second. Then ninety feet to ninety feet, and you make a diamond. And um, the so I remember losing my mind at the idea that the game had evolved to a point where a man is on first base. The average baseball player is on first base. He gets a lead. The lead is as big a lead as you as he can get. Without getting picked off, right? right. That's generally right. You, you get a whatever a four or five step lead, and that is a, that is the, as big as you can get without, but but still can get back to first base quickly if the pitcher throws over, right? So the pitcher sixty feet six inches from home plate plus another couple feet for how far back the catcher has to stand from the plate throws a ball at an average speed of ninety one miles per hour. As he starts his motion, the runner on first takes off for second. Somehow or another, the game has evolved to the point where the exact amount of time that it takes the average pitcher from the stretch to kick his leg, fire his ball to the catcher, for the catcher to then catch the ball, stand up, or just move his arm back from his knees and throw the ball as hard as he can to second base is almost exactly the exact same exact amount of exact time as it takes for the average major league baseball player who has gotten a certain um, the largest lead he can get off of first to make his break run towards second and slide into second base i mean those plays even when a guy steals a base quote unquote easily he's beating the throw by what a half a second maybe maybe a half a second usually a third of a second or a quarter of a second it's just so crazy that amount of clockwork. If you really think about how unlikely that is, it's like evol- it starts to feel like evolution, and that's because it kind of is evolution. It's like they tried different things, they tried different mound heights, they tried different distances. They have it was nine balls and eight strikes and stuff at the beginning of the game to you know to get a walk and or a strikeout. They've tried all these different things, and basically they've come up with. A design for the infield, which unlike the outfields in these parks, is uniform across the majors. They're all exactly the same. 
and they are exactly the right distance. And so the rules governing the distances between the rubber, the plate, and the base paths and the bases are, to me, absolutely perfect. It's, a, it's, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary because it, it's always been true. It's, I mean, it's been true. It was true in the 70s. It was true in the 50s. A ground ball to the backhand side of shortstop. The guy catches the ball, plants, or, or leaps if he's Derek Jeter. That's right. Uh, throws the ball. The guy who is who is of average speed will get thrown out by, you know, a quarter of a step. A guy who's fast will get to the base first, and a guy who's slow is out by a full step. Like that, right. it, it's exactly where you would want first base. It's you could not pick a better place. So I don't know. I mean, this has been obviously discussed for years, but clearly, you know, the the, the distances were perfect. But somehow we've also evolved, like as a species, to keep them perfect like like we're getting faster but our arms are getting better at exactly That's right you know i mean it's it's really it's let's face it baseball is sort of the center of the universe that's really what we're talking about here yeah all right with my fourth pick i'm going to feed off of that i i i want to i want to toss a little bone to uh to this uh little sport that people seem to like uh called uh, football and it's sort of off of off of the the perfect distance Football rules in general are horrible. They're just, they're dreadful and they change them all the time and they're awful. But one rule that stays and, and is, is very, very strong is the four downs to get 10 yards rule. Right. The, that concept of, you know, you would think that as much as people have changed, football has changed, defense, offense, uh, the plays, all of these other things, you would think at some point it would either become impossible to get 10 yards in three plays, or it would be like super easy and you would do it every time and no, but you would, you wouldn't even need sideline guys because you would always get the first down every single time, but we're still, they, they still have that stalemate where a first down is like a legitimate achievement, exactly 10 yards. Well, exactly within the confines of how the NFL measures it, but 10 yards is still like a, a real challenge and still a first down. I think that's pretty impressive. I, football's been around long enough now that that could have gotten outdated, but that rule is absolutely as good as it used to be. Yeah, it's it is the right given the game. It is the right number of tries and the right distance. Yeah, exactly. And and it's, not, and it's not just the right. It's like not just because of how it works out, how the game works out. It's also because it is the um, it's the right number of downs to make the game be have a lot of interesting. Yes. Dilemmas, right? Yes. And now there's all the people saying you should go for fourth down way more often than you do. And there's people who, uh, like the Patriots, often like quick punt on third down sometimes to catch the other team. Like it, for some reason, I, I think if it were only three downs, I think it would, which is, you know, the threes and fives are much more common numbers in things than yes. fours. But somehow four is the right number. It just is. It's the, it's the one that works properly for that game. Uh, yeah, it's great. Um, I'm going to go with the infield fly rule. Okay. The much, the much maligned infield fly rule. <laughs> um, there is a lot of, there, there is a little burgeoning movement, um, at least among people I know who talk about the infield fly rule, who want to get rid of it because they argue and they're not wrong that getting rid of it would lead to more exciting, crazy stuff because right. the whole point of the infield fly rule is to stop like basically easy triple plays from happening. Right. right. And so, you know, runner runners on first and second pop fly to the shortstop. He looks like he's going to catch it. He drops it. He whips it to uh, second whips it to first, you know, tag or tags the guy, you know, whatever gets a triple play um, or at least a double play. Double. Uh, I feel like the the thing that I love about baseball rules is that they are they're really like um it's an incredibly complicated game but they have a bunch of rules like the infield fly rule and the balk rule which I also thought about taking which are basically meant to say no funny business <laughs> you know it's like don't it's like don't no funny business don't don't play the game like don't don't mess around and do a bunch of crazy wacky stuff uh, do to play the game, and I and I think that that is good. I think that the, the that is the at some level the point of rules is to say no funny business, and let's have the game decided not by um, m a bunch of monkeys running around and uh, and throwing banana peels down so that people slip on them, but rather by 
the actual gameplay on the field, right? So, and I and I really for that reason, I love the infield fly rule. It also is kind of interesting. Uh, it happened recently in a game, right? There was a little pop fly that was sort of halfway between oh, short yeah, yeah, right. and left, where they didn't call the infield didn't fly call rule. Didn't say it was high enough, yeah. Right, and they got a triple play because yeah. the runners didn't know what to do and they sort of stopped and then they just kind of lobbed the ball around and it led to a triple play which is kind of cheap but the point is when i saw that i was like yes this is why we need the infield fly rule is because this would happen all the time so i defend the infield fly rule i think it's a good rule i think no funny business and by the way there is still room for a little bit of funny business in baseball right there's the hidden you can do a hidden ball trick as long as the the pitcher isn't on the mound and they haven't, the ball hasn't been put into play again and blah, blah, blah. There is like on the margins of the rules of baseball, there's a little room for funny business. But the infield fly rule protects a ba- very basic and what would ultimately become a kind of boring kind of funny business. And I, and I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I, think, it's, I think it's actually a really great rule. I, the Bach rule in and of itself is a good rule. They never call the Bach rule right. the way I think they should call it, which is – the balk rule should prevent people from doing like very borderline things to trick the runner. That's sort of the whole point. The idea of him going to the belt too quickly or the things that they actually call box on, I kind of pointless. Like I don't, nobody even knows what they are, but the balk rule itself. But I think the infield fly rule is a hundred percent what you're saying. I think baseball, it's, it's sort of like, okay. And this is what other sports I think, especially football don't do enough of. Which is, all right, we, we see you. Yeah, we, we know. We know you're a little – you think you're smart. That's fine. You can't do that. You can't right. do that. That's right. it. That's, that's what baseball is. Baseball is – you play it every day, and it's like, let's, let's, just, let's just keep things clean here. Let's right. just play baseball, all right? Right. Which, which leads totally to my fifth one, um, my fifth pick. So I'm going to go outside of baseball one more time uh, because it's sort of the infield fly rule to me of other sports, and that is goaltending. I think goaltending is such a great rule. Now, it's a very difficult thing to to call, and they blow it all the time, it feels like. Um, and it's become something now where, you know, nobody nobody sort of does goaltending sort of the way that, that they intended, which was used to be used to you could shoot the ball, and if you could jump up and keep it from going into the goal, you could do it, right? So they, they kind of got rid of that when they, got, when they put up goaltending, which I think is absolutely – Fantastic! I to me, that was that was the funny business of baseball of uh, basketball. You had like a guy who was seven two who could stand in front of the goal and you would shoot and you're like, hey, that's going in. The guy would just jump up and knock it away before right. it went in the basket, ruin the whole game. Like the like the the whole game with the athletes today. If there was no goaltending. Basketball would be literally unwatchable. It would just be. You would, you well, would, the, the final go in. Yeah, the final score of every game would be eleven to eight or something. Eleven to eight, exactly. You'd be, and you'd have these great shooters like oh, a three pointer. No, you know, just just knocked away. So it's it's totally uh, changed the game, and it's kind of a a really great concept, which is you know, hey, if the ball is on its way down on the arc down, you can't touch it. I, that that is a very sort of complicated, you know, that was, they had a problem and they had to figure out how to fix it. That's kind of an elegant way to fix it. I'm totally for the goal, for the goaltending. That's a great rule. It is a great rule. It's a great rule. It makes a lot of sense. It's basically like you have it, you have half of the parabola to block the ball and half right. of it. It's like you own the first half of the parabola and the shooter owns the second half, which is a great, it just is a great fair rule. Um, all right. For my fifth pick, I was going to choose a really obscure baseball rule, which led to one of the craziest moments in baseball history. The rule is, uh, this is my side note, I'm not choosing this. The rule is rule 510, which basically says that if something happens to a runner while running the bases, like on a home run, that where he can't uh, complete the jog around the track there around the bases, then he can, there can be a substitute runner for that player. <laughs> and the reason this is crazy is because it happened to the Red Sox in uh, about 10 or 12 years ago. Gabe Kapler was on base, and Tony Graffanino, great name, great, great player from the past. Absolutely. Uh, Tony Graffanino ho- hit a home run. Kapler was rounding second, and he ruptured his Achilles. He just went down like a shot. Now, the crazy he, – and he, and he tried to like get up and limp, but he, but he couldn't do it. He had ruptured his Achilles tendon. So it led to one of the weirdest moments in the history of baseball, which is Tony Graffanino hits a home run. 
He then is standing basically between first base and second base, waiting for 10 minutes in the, mid- in the middle of his home run trot because he can't pass <laughs> Kapler because then he'll be out, right? So Cap, they, the doctors come out and they tend to Kapler and they, he, you know, they, I think they got a, they might have gotten a stretcher if not he limped off or a, you know, over the shoulders of some people. Sure. Then they conferred with the umpires and then they blah, 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 blah. And Francona eventually said, was a, like, you can put in a substitute runner. So they send in a substitute runner for Kapler who came and like stood where Kapler had been and then started <laughs> running around the bases and then Graffanino jogged around behind him. And then it was a two-run homer. And the cra- like the craziest thing is that is a record. I'm sure that Tony Graffinino has the record for longest home run trot yes. of all oh, time, yeah. <laughs> and it is a record that will never be broken. He has a, it was like a 10 or 12 minute home run trot because from the time he hit the ball to the time he touched home plate, it was like it was 10 or 12 minutes. So that w- it was a weird moment, and I love that. Of course, as we talked about. With the Jose Bautista bat flip game, sure. uh, their baseball has a rule for everything. They, there have been enough enough moments of baseball, enough games where they have seen every scenario, and they now have a they have a rule for every situation. But, I think my favorite. I think my favorite part of that is, by the way, that that he went and stood where Gabe Kapler had been standing. Like 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 okay, it was like a movie scene, right? And, okay, bring the stunt man in. Yeah, exactly. Stands at exact spot. Okay, go go. I you think go. I can't remember now whether. He went and touched second base just to be sure, you know, that like this wasn't an illegal. I can't can exactly or whether he just stood exactly where Kapler had last been. I got. I'm gonna have to look it up and see who it was. Yeah, it was. Tw- it was. Uh, uh, hold on, I can find it right here. Uh, so it was September 14th, 2005, and the substitute runner was Alejandro Machado. Nice, <laughs> Legend- le- the legendary Alejandro Machado. Um, yeah. So, but a great, like a, a truly great rule. I love that baseball is a rule for everything. But I'm going to go with one non-baseball rule, and that rule, and in, in, in it's it's like goaltending, basically. It's the three-point rule. Um, yes. The the playoffs in baseball are uh, basketball are so fun right now, and it's largely because of the three-point rule. And the it's not just because of the Warriors. It's not just because of the Warriors have three of the greatest shooters of all time on their team at one moment. Um, but it's also because um, the the way that base, the basketball – I keep saying baseball because I, <laughs> I just love baseball. The, the reason that basketball games are as exciting or can be as exciting as they are, the reason it was exciting, the Golden State came back from down 23 in the second half last night – is because they can score, it's possible to score three points at a time. And if it weren't possible to do that, you would never see what you saw. You would never see a bunch of the stuff that you've seen over the last several years. The three-point shot, which was like a gimmick, it was an ABA gimmick that then was adopted and all that stuff, has completely changed basketball for the better. And now there is not a there's no deficit that seems too great to overcome there is a way in which a in the old days like a drive and a layup or a drive and a dunk would send the crowd into a frenzy it, but now the three pointer does that like if yeah. you watch those big wide shots from like John Wall's three pointer against the Celtics the other night or Steph Curry's three pointers as the team is climbing back into the game the way that the crowd, the, the anticipation as the ball is in the air is so great. And then the immediate explosion of joy when it goes through. It's just, it has really, it's, it's done more to help basketball be fun, I think, than almost any other rule. I mean, you know, it used to be illegal to dunk. So you might be able to argue that the rule that made it legal to dunk has done as much. But I think the three-point rule uh, and the establishment of that line has really, like, has really just it it cranked the excitement of basketball up by like fifty percent to me. Oh, absolutely! I you know it's funny because I was thinking about this. It used to be constantly NBA highlights would always be the same thing. The NBA highlight would be somebody driving in for a dunk, and then they would cut to somebody in the crowd high fiving somebody else. Right? That like that was like the like the the. The singular NBA highlight is, oh, let's go to, you know, Spurs Rockets. And they would show, like, David Robinson dunking. And then they would cut to two fans in San Antonio high-fiving. And then they'd show somebody else dunking and two more fans high-fiving. And that was, like, that was it. And it was just so tired after yeah. a while. I mean, because there's only so many ways you could dunk a basketball. I mean, yeah, the dunk contest is its own thing. But there's only – it. 
but a three-pointer is, first of all, it's worth more, which is awesome. And then they just keep shooting from further and further away, which is way more impressive to me than dunking. I mean, it's just, there's, it's, I totally agree. It's, it's changed the game. You know, it, it, there are those that would say it is, um, it, it, there's too much of it now. I mean, there are those that say, hey, you know, what would happen to the mid-range jumper and whatever and the and low post game and all this sort of thing. I don't think there could be too much of it because it's such a it's such a skill based shot. You know, I mean, you, you, you have to be really, really good to make a three point shot and especially to make it with the way they play defense in the NBA. And this I, I, I totally agree with you. Totally with you. It's one last meaningless thing. about sports and we draft things we know like how beaches are terrible places to go no hot fruit for michael or diet coke for joe the podcast it's one last my one last meaningless thing uh, is simply to say that Derek Jeter's night <laughs> of having his number retired, truly, in a weird way, I got emotional wow. because I truly now feel like the entire era of <laughs> Ortiz is retired. Everybody's everybody on both teams is basically gone from that right. from that 2004 era. But Jeter retiring like that, he was so Derek Jeter was more present in my emotional and mental life than any like person uh, outside of my like family or friend group. And in fact, <laughs> was more was probably more present than most of my friends for a while. And him retiring, it was like, oh, it's all over. It's like I don't have to worry about the Yankees, the 2004 Yankees anymore. <laughs> I know that's sad, but I really did like it, it's the to me it is a little bit the end of an era. And when they retire Ortiz's number, that'll be another one of those moments. But that I've never been more intensely aware of and invested in any sport or sort of milieu of sports than I was of the 2003-2004 Red Sox Yankees rivalry. So every time one of those guys, you know, uh, retires or has their number retired or is inducted into the Hall of Fame or eventually dies or any of it. Like, I am going to think about that. Those feelings are going to come back so intensely. And it's part of why sports is great. It's because I like that means I, I don't like Derek Jeter. And that meant, really meant something to me. And I had like a wave of emotion about him retiring. Yeah. No, I, I remember when, when John Elway retired, uh, that was weirdly emotional like weirdly not not in a negative way i was very happy uh that he retired and i was when he went to the hall of fame i you know sort of felt those same emotions they weren't but i wasn't exactly like it wasn't a gloating feeling either it was sort of a oh wow that's that's over with now like that's that whole time period of my life where this guy tortured my soul is done it's done and and you know it's I don't feel nostalgic for it. I don't ever want it to come back. But yet there's sort of a moment of passing that is that is definitely it is. It's emotional. I think yeah. it's emotional. So um, all right, my one last meaningless thing. Then this meaningless thing is again uh, just a little personal thing. I am um, teaching my oldest daughter to drive. Well, she's already sort of taken all the classes and all that. <clears throat> so she is. Doing the, she has her like permit, so she's doing the you know ride in the car. She can drive with us in the car, and and I just the only meaningless thing I want to say about it is if you if you are a parent lucky enough to to have a child who who is driving a car, um, don't don't yell at them. Don't 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 <laughs> do that. Don't 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 like because my wife, wonderful soul, wonderful mother in every way, she sort of panics a little bit when, when Elizabeth's driving and it's not pretty. It's just not a pretty picture. You just basically what I've learned how to do is sort of say, okay, just, just a little to the left, just so you don't hit that mailbox, just a little, just, just glide it, guide. <laughs> I'm very measured and, and I feel like that works. So that would be my one last meaningless thing is you have a child who is driving measured, very, very measured. Mm. All right. 
Don't you mean good advice? That doesn't. That, that's borderline meaningful. I think you. No, again, I think we're uh, we're 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 running the risk of betraying the concept of one last meaningless thing. So that seems actually really, like a meaningful we thing. We really need to go meaningless. I mean, we need to go for like completely pointless. Like Q-tips are good. That's we right. This is uh, our. Uh, you, you, we should. Our challenge is uh, next next time we do this is to go more meaningless. Go meaningless. All right. We'll yeah. we'll work on it. We'll work All on right. it. I hope you will have for next week a uh, you are the commissioner. Uh, I hope so too. Uh, we, well, the game, uh, yeah, we have a game this weekend, and uh, you know there aren't that many rules. It's not like Major League Baseball; there aren't that many rules that can come up. But uh, uh, but maybe if if one comes up, we'll we'll play another round is, of is you, the, you be the commissioner. You be the commissioner. Is there is there an infield fly rule? Uh, there is, I believe. Yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure there's an infield fly rule. There's also, there's some interesting rules. Most of the rules are just in place to protect the kids' arms, right? So it's like, how many pitches can you throw? How many innings can you throw? All that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So, well, hopefully, hopefully some interesting thing will come up and uh, we can play another round. And again, imagine in your head, Mike Schmidt pretending to field a ball or like catch, catching a ball and then turning to the camera and right saying, camera. you be the commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as always, Michael, thank you. Thanks for having me.